welcome to From Where We Are, stories of news and culture through the lens of USC and Southern California. I'm Yana Carr, coming to you live from Studio B in USC's Annenberg Media Center. And I'm Sophia Hausch. It's October 1st. On today's show, the future of plastic straws in Los Angeles, new legislation affecting student-athletes, and a new study on how meat could affect your health. All that and more from Where We Are. If you really love plastic straws, well, suck it up. Today, LA's plastic straw ban will enter phase two, extending to fast food drive-throughs, food trucks, and small restaurants. LA County's Department of Public Health mandated in April that restaurants with more than 26 employees are prohibited from providing single-use plastic straws or stirrers to consume unless requested. Today, all restaurants in LA will be required to comply. Plastic straws are the latest in a long list of items banned from L.A. in an effort to make the city more environmentally friendly. Various replacements to plastic straws have already been seen around campus, from paper ones to the new new strawless Starbucks lids. Annenberg media reporter Nicholas Burlett went out into the field to see what USC students have to say about the ban and how it impacts the way they sip and slurp. I think any ban of unuseful plastic that can be exchanged for other materials is a step forward. I think as long as there's alternatives available such as paper straws or potentially other forms, I know there's like bamboo and other things like that. I definitely think it's nice to use a straw. I don't think the new whatever the cardboard straws are the best. There probably can be an improvement in the way they're made and that they don't go like soggy. We'll say for stuff like, you know, if I'm going to Starbucks, I'm getting a Frappuccino or something like that, straws are still essential. So I still think uh, they're an important part of our, uh, you know, drinking experience. Americans discard millions of plastic straws each day, and straws are one of the top 10 items found in oceans worldwide. And that's the tea with a paper straw. Remember when finding vintage clothes at Goodwill used to be exciting? You'd find the perfect pair of light-washed Levi jeans from InSync's heyday or the cutest retro Letterman jacket. But now thrift shopping is less digging for treasure and more digging through racks and racks of Forever 21 shirts. Or it was, until now. Forever 21 recently filed for for bankruptcy. Sorry, This brings the practicality of fast fashion into question and if it's even a solid business plan anymore. Kat Kilijian has the story. Forever 21 has recently filed for bankruptcy. They may close up to 178 U.S. stores soon. The latest development is a sign of the demise of the brick-and-mortar fast fashion industry. Fast fashion companies mass-produce cheap, trendy clothing as quickly as possible. But these days, it's just not selling quickly enough. The trend is hurting profits and generating lots of waste. Because of the unsustainability of fast fashion, outside observers have called out companies like Forever 21 as morally bankrupt. And these critics aren't alone. Working there was kind of a nightmare. Former Forever 21 employee Rachel Moreno says that Forever 21's irresponsibility wreaked havoc on the daily lives of the company's employees. Like unboxing clothes all day, every day, and we would just have boxes constantly coming in and out of the store just full of clothes. And on the business end, Marshall business professor Carrie Field says that the clothing store's filing is the latest sign that fast fashion is starting to burn out. The owners of this business have a business model that is out of sync with the marketplace. Young people like USC sophomore Cora Forrester are becoming more environmentally aware. It's nice and sometimes it's convenient, but in the long run, it's really not sustainable at all. But even so, 
Some students, like Samada Tanti, will miss the convenience of Forever 21. I'm not too excited about that, honestly. I do a lot of shopping at Forever 21. Of course, even with the bankruptcy of Forever 21, online shopping has filled the gap, and fast fashion won't disappear anytime soon. For Annenberg Media, I'm Kat Kilajan. California Governor Gavin Newsom signed a groundbreaking state Senate bill into law over the weekend, allowing college student-athletes to finally make an income. Annenberg Media News reporter Vanessa Gay gives us more on what this means for USC athletes and NCAA sports moving forward. Over the weekend, in a clip from an unreleased episode of NBA superstar LeBron James's HBO show, Governor Newsom signed a new bill that requires California student-athletes to be compensated for the use of their name, image, and likeness starting in 2023. The law, originally introduced by Senators Nancy Skinner and Steve Bradford, says that student-athletes can sign endorsement deals with major companies, although it still does not authorize schools to pay them directly. USC professor Ben Carrington is an expert in race, class, and gender in sports and popular culture. This doesn't have to say anything about whether or not student-athletes should be paid directly, and I think they should do. So the big change, really, is to give rights and kind of ownership to the student-athletes over their likeness, their image, and the types of uh, activities they might get in outside of campus, and to get paid for it. USC athletic officials declined a request for an interview, but released a statement on Monday saying that they support student-athlete policy reforms, but are concerned that the new law will make it more difficult for student-athletes to compete and harder for California universities to attract talent in the absence of a national-level reform. I had a YouTube channel while I was a student-athlete that gained over 40,000 subscribers during my time at USC, and I was not able to monetize that channel due to this rule. Victoria Garrick, a former USC women's volleyball player, explained how she wishes this opportunity was available during her time as an athlete. But I think really it's about being able to get what you deserve and what you're earning from your performance on the court or on the field. And some student athletes could really benefit from free meals, from having their rent paid for by their YouTube channel, from being able to save money so that when they leave college, they have like money saved up from the work they've done. Although the new law will change the lives of many student athletes by giving them an opportunity to earn an income, the NCAA told press that it is unconstitutional. Senator Bradford, though, said it was necessary. It's time to reform the NCAA. It's a billion-dollar industry. Uh, coaches make millions of dollars uh, at, uh, in their profession now at universities. Uh, they're able to enter into contracts and sponsorship agreements using their name, likeness, and image separate from the university. Any student-athlete should be allowed to do, it, uh, do the same. Bradford said that the new law is 40 years overdue and is proud that California lawmakers finally have the courage to deal with these issues head on. It shouldn't be at the forefront of, uh, I guess, social issues. But again, this is a civil rights issue because the majority of athletes who fill stands and arenas all across this country are black men and women who play the sports to generate most of the revenue for these colleges and universities. For Annenberg Media, I'm Vanessa Gay. It's October and it's National Cybersecurity Awareness Month. The Office of the Chief Information Security Officer at USC is announcing the launch of Trojan Secure. It's a new information security awareness program. Reporter Yuki Liang has more. 
The new Children Secure program is aimed at helping USC students, staff, and faculty to better protect personal data as well as USC data. When the Office of the Chief Information Security Officer or the Office of CIO at USC noticed that the school's old security awareness program was not that robust, they started to conceive a new program. Now, Children Secure is finally being rolled out. Gus Anagnos, USC's chief information security officer, said it took them a year to design this new program. When I looked at what's happening out in the world around cybercrime, I noticed that uh, the way hackers are actually getting into networks and stealing our important information, our sensitive information, is through faculty, through our staff, and through our students. It takes the entire team, everyone that's involved in the network, be it students, alumni, faculty, staff, to protect the university and the university's assets, which includes student information, the number one asset that we need to protect. We call them our crown jewels. To better protect these assets, Children Secure not only offers online training, but also various types of interactives, events, and cybersecurity tips. In the month of October, we will have an event that'll be just outside of Bovard. There'll be some games and there'll be learning opportunities in terms of how do you protect your privacy, how do you protect yourself from a security standpoint, your devices and your interactions with the internet. The office of the CIO is asking all students to be more engaged and really learn through this program to better protect themselves. Unfortunately, once your personal information gets out there, it never gets hidden again, right? So the best way is just to protect it in the first place. If you want to learn more about security tips and tricks and get to know more about the Children's Secure Program, visit infosec.usc.edu. You can also access computer-based training modules via childrenlearn.csod.com by searching the word Children's Secure. For Annenberg Media, I'm Yuki Liang. A study encourages the consumption of processed and red meats, but health officials say not so fast. Reporter Hala Osgur has more. A study released Monday is giving the green light to the consumption of processed and red meats. In opposition to previous skepticisms, beliefs, and studies, new guidelines in the journal Annals of Internal Medicine say links to health problems like heart disease and cancer are weak, therefore making red meats okay to consume. The guidelines, consolidated by a private panel of 14 members, were created on the basis of prior research. So what's new about their findings then? In an interview with CBS this morning, Dr. Tara Narula explains what these researchers did differently. This is not new research. They put it all together, and in fact, they found that, you know what, there is a benefit in terms of decreases in cardiovascular disease, mortality, and cancer if you consume less meat. However, they then went the next step to say that they thought the benefits were small. They thought that this was sort of uncertain, low kind of quality evidence. They looked at people's preferences and says, well, pe people like to eat meat. It fits in with their culture. It's hard to change. Since the benefits of really cutting meat are there, but they're small, they're not really outweighed by the difficulty it is for a lot of people, given their cultural and quality of life and eating preferences. The studies have created an uproar amongst other health and nutrition researchers. USC professor of preventative medicine and urology, Mariana Stern, expresses her concerns. This study is not contributing anything new. It's just reinterpreting the evidence that we already had, uh, just using a different logic, um, a logic that in many aspects is flawed, and it's just creating confusion in the public. So with whichever side of the red meat eating debate you're on, health officials say moderation is key. For Annenberg Media, I'm Hala Osgur.
stolen bikes on campus might have a hard time getting home if you don't register them, according to DPS. On average, 20 to 30 bikes are stolen a month. In September, there were 37. If DPS does recover a stolen bike, they can only return it to registered owners. But of the approximately 10,000 bikes on campus, fewer than a third are actually registered. Natasha Brennan has more. Registering a bike with DPS is apparently pretty important. If yours gets stolen and they find it, that's the only way you can get it back. DPS Crime Analysis and Intelligence Officer Wyman Thomas stresses the importance of registering your bike. Bicycle registration works in two different ways for us. It helps us identify who the bicycle belongs to. Should we recover it if it was abandoned? Should we recover it if it was stolen? Should we recover it if it was lost? Uh, we at least have a, a system in place where we can notify the owner and give the property back to their, uh, their, their owner. Communications major Bridget Simpkins had her bike stolen from Greek Row. Now, with the new bike, she's taking steps to prevent it from being stolen. I got a better lock. Yeah, no more U-lock, because they left my lock there and it was just sawed in half. She will be registering her new bike. Staff member Andre Bro, who directs traffic in McCarthy Quad, said that many students come to him to report stolen bikes, even though he's not a DPS officer. That's a daily thing. Yeah, that's, that's a daily thing on that's a daily thing on campus and off campus. People leaving their bike unattended, or sometimes they'll come around and cut your lock and take your bike. In previous years, DPS has held bike registration booths. This year, officers have taken a more personal approach, dental student David Hernandez says. actually came up to me and just offered it over the beginning of the semester. I think they had some of the safety uh, department, mm -hmm. and they were just offering students to register their bike for free. And so they caught me at a good time. <laughs> David has tips for keeping your bike safe. But I always try to keep my bike well secured. I have two types of locks. One if I'm just going to be out for a, a little bit, and another one once if I'm going to be out for a longer time. Um, I always also try to lock it in the frame, so even if they they try to steal it, the most it can get is probably the tires or something, so you can always replace those. According to DPS, the majority of stolen bikes are taken from the main campus by non-USC students. I've seen all these bicycles just parked, freestanding, it's like a cookie jar. It can be very attractive for a lot of juveniles or people who don't have bicycles. And Recovered bikes are held by DPS for 90 days. At the end of the school year, any bikes that are not claimed are donated to local organizations like the Boys and Girls Club. DPS donates approximately 200 to 400 bikes a year. To register your bike, go to dps.usc.edu slash services slash bikes. For Annenberg Media, I'm Natasha Brennan. You're listening to From Where We Are. It's 15 minutes after the hour. I'm Sophia Hausch. And I'm Yana Carr. Coming up, the five-year anniversary of Wallace Annenberg Hall and a spotlight on a local dance studio. Now it's time for Ampersand Radio, a segment specializing in arts and culture stories. It can be hard to lose yourself in the middle of a workout, but at the Sweat Spot Dance Studio in Los Angeles, the whole point is to inhabit your body by losing yourself within it. And how you get into what Michael Chetson-Mihai dubbed the flow, the flow state. Zosha Millman went to this class to find out how it works. 
in an all-black room with no mirrors, tucked off Sunset Boulevard and Silver Lake, we begin to sway. This is Dance Church. It's not a real church. It's part free dance, part structured workout. The name is a clever way to describe the atmosphere. A passionate congregation enchanted by the music and the movement of their bodies. The music is loud, and though I'm surrounded by 60 other people, I stop noticing who's around me. Even as, as a professional dancer, it takes the judgment out from me. That's Stephanie Zolotel, one of the teachers for LA's Dance Church chapter. It's so liberating for me to be in front of a group of people and not have to be perfect, to just be myself and to play and be goofy. The mantra that leads off every class is, say yes to your choices. In other words, get your head out of your body's way. The teachers lead us from the middle of the room, but we don't have to follow the teacher. If a squat isn't in the cards for you today, then you can move how your body needs. The idea behind all this is when you're busy saying yes to your own choices, you start to not care about the ones people are making around you. By removing the guardrails, students can end up feeling more energized by the class. That's how I felt. It's not unlike what psychologist Mihai Csikszentmihalyi calls the flow state. Here he is at a TED talk in 2004. Well, in, when you are really involved in this, um, uh, completely engaging process of creating something new, as this man does, he doesn't have enough attention left over to monitor how his body feels or his problems at home. He can't feel even that he's hungry or tired. His body disappears, his identity uh, disappears from his consciousness, because if you don't think, it goes automatically. You merge yourself with the music and so forth. Merging yourself with the music is what dance church teachers want to see in every class. There's so many different reasons to come into that room, and at a certain moment, all of that disappears, and it's just, you're just moving your body. Um, and there's always that one moment in class where it almost feels like I'm no longer in charge, and it's rather this like group information, like the group is giving me the information. And that's kind of, I mean, that's like the moment I live for is when it just sort of like the, the structure just takes over and I don't have to invent anything. I'm just responding to like the people. The class does wrap up with one ritual. We're prompted to show off a few moves in a giant dance circle. Then dance church finishes up with a clap and a round of applause. I finish feeling sweaty on the outside, but clean on the inside. It's a relief to just let loose and do what you want to with your body. Beyond just dancing like no one's watching, it's sort of dancing like you're a kid again who's never had to think about having eyes on you. For Annenberg Media, I'm Zosha Millman. In a few seconds, it's going to be 420. Later in our show, hear about the first cannabis cafe in the entire United States. At first glance, Wallace Annenberg Hall looks like an old brick collegiate building, but inside, its modern technology shines through. On its fifth anniversary, we set out to discover what went into making New Annenberg and how the teams that created this deceptively simple building navigated tricky challenges that only come with elements like a three-story screen. Oh, this 
is such an amazing building. I love this building. And who wouldn't want to go here? This place is beautiful, and we have, uh, you know, we have better equipment and better facilities than a lot of the local stations, like most of the local stations. So. I think it's a beautiful building inside and out. Some of my colleagues and I joke that we like to tell students this is the nicest newsroom you're ever going to work in. You just heard from some of our team here at Annenberg Media who call Wallace Annenberg Hall, or ANN, home. That was Director of Specialized Journalism, Sasha Onavalt, Media Center Technical Supervisor, Tom Norris, and Journalism Professor, Rebecca Haggerty. These three all expressed a positive view of the building, which definitely took more to create than may meet the eye. For starters, as project director John Morrill explains, the architectural design went through many drafts and originally had a modern exterior that changed due to university standards. The school wanted more of a more modern facility outside. They wanted the outside to be modern and contemporary, but you know, USC had their certain standards they were looking for and you know, the president prevailed. So the compromise was the outside is gonna be historical, collegiate Gothic, and it's going to be consistent with a lot of the buildings you see around. But the inside, do, it, do whatever you want. The design wasn't the only thing to present challenges. You know, a couple of challenges come to mind with, one, getting that big frame in for that, for that screen. We had, to, we had to leave an opening, uh, opening in the roof. So we were building the building, but we knew someday we had to bring in that frame. So we, we did. kept the portion of the roof open, brought the biggest crane we could bring. And they picked up this pre, you know, prefabricated frame and blindly dropped it into the hole, and then bolted it to to the structure you have today. So that so that was tough. While he's ultimately happy with the result, Morrill says that if he could change one thing, it would be the wiring. A complex newsroom space definitely led to more wires than they may have originally anticipated. Uh, we had a challenge running all the wires. You know, I don't know how many millions of miles of wires there are in this building, but we have wires going from the whole building down into the lower, into the basement, into that computer room down there. So I think if, if we had to do it over again, we probably would have designed a better system. Aside from the apparent beauty of the building, the practicality of Wallace Annenberg Hall is an improvement for the school, as the Director of Undergraduate Journalism Studies, Rebecca Haggerty, explains. People really did get to work together, and I can see that students, you know, they go, they work for radio, they work for TV, you know, they write for the online publication, they're working with the social team, and they, um, you know, they have the opportunity to see how all of those things work together to produce journalism. Here's to the future of ANN, and happy anniversary. Did you know there are 7,000 trees on USC's three campuses, and the oldest of them are probably older than the campus itself? I know Freelander went on a tour with USC campus arborist Mike Wallach to find the hidden tree treasures on campus. You might think you like trees, but you almost certainly don't like trees the way Mike Wallach likes trees. He is the campus arborist at USC, which is a fancy way of saying he takes care of the trees. He loves his job. I know this sounds corny, but when I was four years old, the very first book I got was The True Story of Smokey the Bear, who uh, grows up to protect the forest. There are 7,000 trees on USC's three campuses. When construction crews, students, or insects threaten them, Mike Wallach gives them hell. Somebody has to speak for the trees. Without trees, uh, we all die. Part of Mike Wallach's job is to crisscross the campus and make sure the trees are doing okay. 
Wallach is letting me join him in his electric cart for a little tour of his favorite trees. Hop in. Okay, huh? onward with the rocket. There's my friend Duke. Hi, Duke. First stop, Truesdale Parkway in front of Zumberg Hall. But uh, I just love the trunk of this tree. We're looking at a beautiful gnarled old magnolia. Wallach says everybody should spend some time just staring at it. You can see like a nose and an eye and a mouth and... I could swear I'm seeing an otter. Next, we're going to see a truly ancient tree. Mm, I'll show you the petrified log. It's a section of a fossilized log on display behind the Doheny Library. According to the plaque, USC students brought it back from Arizona. Wallach is suspicious. It's kind of uh, hard to believe that uh, somebody just thought, hey... Why don't we drive out to the Arizona desert and pick up a petrified log? Haven't students always had stupid ideas? True, that's true. The petrified log is probably several million years old, which makes it the oldest tree on campus. And where are we going now? I am going to take you to the dragon tree. Um, This is it right here. This is probably the oldest uh, living tree that we have. We've parked behind Bovard, the dragon tree looks straight out at the movie Jurassic Park. It even looks scaly. Wallach says it grows very, very slowly. Dragon palms can live a thousand years. This one is maybe 150 years old. But you have to remember it's still living and it's in its, in its prime. It's a, a very good specimen, very good. I mean, it, it's, it's beautiful. Recently, Wallach has been planting fruit trees around the campus. We have peaches, pears, apples, lemons, limes, oranges, avocados, and they're all growing there. And uh... Wallach feels we should all think a little bit more about trees, and he's probably right. So the next time you sit in the shade to eat lunch or bite into an avocado, spare a thought for the tree and for Mike Wallach, who is taking care of it. For Annenberg Media, I'm Aino Freelander. The first cannabis cafe in the United States opened today in West Hollywood. It's called Lowell Farms, a cannabis cafe. You can smoke marijuana there while eating and drinking. It's completely legal. The restaurant will even rent you a bong or a pipe to smoke, or you can bring your own. You have to be 21 or older with a valid ID. Mark Houston designed the cannabis cafe. He says he tried to make it homey, cozy, and warm. What most people that I've heard expect, a dark, dingy room that you're supposed to feel hidden, as you go in there, it's open, it's airy, it's exposed. And I think it was important to like have that transparency where it's not like a place where you're supposed to be confined and hidden and somebody's private home or like a little basement, you should feel like that stigma is gone. You know, this is open airy. I'm bringing my mom, I'm bringing family. It's like, it's an event. It's like a joyous moment. And I tried to imagine what it would be like when prohibition ended with alcohol. Chef Andrea Drummer says this first-in-the-nation cafe should normalize smoking marijuana. It's regular business. It's like, let me have the cannabis menu and see what I'd like to order from that. And let's have the food menu and see what I'd like to order from that. A server there, Shay Navarro, expects this cafe will be the first of many nationwide. It's actually just a beautiful experience and a place to come. So it's definitely going to open doors. I could see people wanting to... Um, you know, start their own. People came from near and far today. Lines were long at the nation's first cannabis cafe. 
Hey, do you guys have the munchies after that story? Because <laughs> I brought my favorite cookies for <gasps> National Cookie Day. Oh my, oh my gosh. gosh, thank you so much. I love oh, they, cookies. Oh, they look delicious. Chip. And thank I don't you. know if I want to eat on air. No one wants to hear me chew. <laughs> These are my favorite kinds of cookies. It's a real shame I am not uh, 21 or over because I would love to go to that new cafe. I know. <laughs> Honestly, I am, but you know, I don't dabble in the marijuana. <laughs> <laughs> so, what are your guys' favorite cookies? Mm, I'm, I'm a good old classic chocolate chip. Mm-hmm. I, you, you got me here with these. Chocolate chip is solid, but Snickerdoodle, close mm. second. Also close. Anything with cinnamon or like brown sugar in it, always, always good. good. Where'd you get these cookies from? From Big Bear. What is that? It's on campus in the village. I've never been there before. And they give you ice cream. Ice cream? Mm-hmm. Like you can make cookie ice cream sandwiches? Mm-hmm. Ooh, love that. I've been there once. I can say it's definitely delicious. It's my favorite spot on campus. I'll have to try it. By far. <laughs> That's all we have time for on today's From Where We Are. Zazu Lippert and Iona White produced today's show. We had help today from Isaiah Murtaugh. Yuki Liang is our board operator. Derek Renfro composed our theme music. Subscribe to From Where We Are on iTunes. And follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Annenberg Media. I'm Yana Carr. And I'm Sophia Hausch. From wherever you are, we hope you'll join us again next time for From Where We Are.